Oh, we all are runners. We all run a race, and none of us know exactly how long that race will be. On a day like today, this Memorial Day weekend, there's a, a time of remembrance where you consider the soldiers that had their race cut short. We're thankful for our military men and women who volunteer to pay the ultimate price. And there's an understanding that many of those thousands and thousands of men and women who served in the military forces paid that cost. Their race was cut short. And others, as we had the opportunity yesterday uh, to, to bury uh, Brother James Pike, who ran a race of 90 years faithfully after the Lord. A longer race. None of us know how long the race is that God has marked out for us to run. It might be extremely short in perspective. It might be longer. But with all, there is a sense of, wow, that ended too quickly. The race the Lord has marked out for us to run, none of us know the full duration that it will be. But we all, I believe, have a desire, whether young or old, to finish well. The question becomes, how do I finish my race well if I don't know how long my race is going to be? As we come to this Hebrew letter now through Psalm 119, this hey, this Aleph, Bet, Vet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, this portion. So Psalm 119 is organized through 22 different Hebrew letters. And in our English translations, we'll see that letter spelled out typically. And then every one of those eight verses begins in the Hebrew with that letter. And our letter this morning in God's good providence gives us five insights for how you and I might finish our race well. Every one of us, young or old, would say, you know what, about my life, I want it to be said that I finished well. How do we finish well? We choose today to run well. Regardless of what has happened before this morning is to say with a resolve, I'm going to run well today. Because one day it will be the end of our race on this earth as we know it. Our prayer is that we would be a people that God would grow up and mature and develop as men and women, that we would be so committed to running well, the race that the Lord has marked out for us, that these five distinguishing attributes, these five characteristics of what it means to be a man or woman who runs well would mark our lives. So whether our race is only a few years or a few decades or many decades, it might be said of us, for the glory of God, they finished well. So turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 119. As we take this morning this Hebrew letter of, hey, that's the sound, verse 33 through 40. And we notice first and foremost, again, if you have notes, if you don't have a Bible, please do grab the Pewback Bible in front of you and follow along with us. We notice first and foremost this attribute we pray that God would use to mark our lives individually and corporately as a church body we pray that we would be a people who are continually learning from the Lord, a people who are continually learning from the Lord. See, those who finish well are continually learning from the Lord. Verse 33 and 34, the psalmist writes, Teach me, O Lord. Remember, all capitalized, it's, it's, it's Yahweh, the personal name of the Lord. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Now, 
freeze frame on that. I'm not going to give you time to flip there, but I'll read it as a reminder. In Matthew 18, Jesus is interacting with his disciples, and his disciples ask a question to him. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus responds in that moment. In Matthew 18, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, this child. And he said, truly I say to you, speaking to his disciples, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The psalmist in verse 33 depicts Jesus' words in Matthew 18. He has a child's like faith, a child's like trust. We might say that though he's older in years, he's mature enough to think like a child. He's mature enough to have faith like a child. Oh, that the Lord would take every one of us, regardless of your degrees or your years on this earth, and say, Lord, make my heart like a child, unashamed to be a learner of you for my whole life. God, don't ever let any of us get to a point where we say, I've got it all figured out. I've arrived. I don't need to learn from you anymore, Lord. As a child has a question, they go to the one they trust. They go to their parent's leg. Here's a question for you. A question for you. And the psalmist, this marks his life. He says, teach me, Yahweh. Teach me, O Lord, the statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Now, there's in your translation, you'll probably see there's a footnote. Again, the Bible is an incredible resource. There's no secret with the Bible. You can take up the languages, but our own translators help us. If there's a word, typically that's given, that can be translated in its context either way, they'll usually give you a little footnote at the bottom, and you probably see a little letter or a number there, which says that it could be translated in a different way. And in the context, it's absolutely true. So you notice in our ESV, it's, it's translated, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes... And it's given a description, and I will keep it to the end. But it can also very legitimately be a consequential understanding. So it can be understood in this way. Teach me, Yahweh, the way of your statutes, and in keeping them, I shall find my reward. It can really go either way. So the idea is if the Lord teaches me, I have my reward in that he's taught me and I get his word. I get to know him. That's my reward. The other ESV, it takes it... As Totally legitimate translation, that's the majority of translations take it that way, to say, Lord, give me your word, and, and because it's valuable, I will keep it to the end. It's both, so it's hitting two sides of the same diamond, we might say, and how we understand it. But don't let that confuse us, because through Psalm 119, both of those points are going to be argued. Both of those are going to be touched upon. So they're both very legitimate applications and understandings, and we'll see they're in Scripture through the rest of Psalm 119. But what I don't want it to do for us is don't let it miss the point from the very beginning here. That one who finishes well has in their heart's cry a desire to learn the statutes of the Lord, to learn from the Lord, rather than to teach the Lord their own statutes. You see the difference? A desire between being teachable of the Lord in his word and a desire to teach the Lord about your word. That's the difference here. This marks the attribute of one who finishes well in their life. And what kind of teacher does he need? In verse 34, so we want to be ones who are continually learning from the Lord. In verse 34, we need a teacher who can give us understanding. Give me understanding. Give me understanding. Do you have a teacher in your life? Have you ever had a professor or a teacher? Whether it was somebody teaching you the scriptures or somebody in school growing up. 
that took the time to make things click for you. They taught you, but then they went back with you, and they could see maybe a little curiosity in your eyes, and they were able to walk back around with you and help it to make sense, help it to give you true understanding. So when you hear it the first time, you say, I know what you're saying, but I don't really know what you're saying. Oh, the good teacher takes the time to go back and say, let me help you understand Let me help you understand. And how do you know it's understood? What do they do in their life? He says in verse 34, that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. See, the first idea of you and I are going to be a people, a man and a woman who finishes well our race that the Lord calls us to run is that we are learners from the Lord. And what kind of learners does he desire? Look on into verse 35. We see that those who finish well, secondly, they will delight in doing the will of the Lord. They will delight in doing the will of the Lord. Verse 35, he says, Lead me, lead me, Lord, in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Now, boys and girls, if you're visiting with us here in this service, you're a part of our church family, we love you, and we are glad that you're here. And we want to encourage you this week to make sure your mommy and daddy reads with you Psalm 119 at least once. That's how I'm getting you, parents. Gotcha. Hey, it's the same way. Uriah is always making us pray, and if we forget at lunch, he's, pray, right? He keeps us straight. Children can do that for us. So Psalm 119, as you read through that text as a family, read it through just once this week, Psalm 119. And as you read through, read slowly sometimes. So that's why when we have the eight-verse sections, as we come upon them every time, take time to pray through that section. So that at the end of this 22-week series, we'll have really thought intentionally about each of those verses. Well, verse 35 is one of those verses that we hear right away and we like it. We all, if we were a super verbal congregation, we'd all say, amen, right? Verse 35, we look and say, lead me in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. Amen, sign my name on that. I agree with you. But then you read it a little slower. Introspective of your own life and your own mind and your own heart. And so I can make it a prayer, Lord, lead me in the path of your commandments. But then the second part kind of trips me up sometimes, if I'm being honest with you. For I delight in it. I don't always always delight in being led, even if by the Lord. There's There's this aspect in me, in my fallen nature, and maybe you have it too, that I want to be led, but I want to be led how I want to be led, where I want to be led, when I want to be led. So lead me, Lord. Can you relate to that? God, do this in my life, but at the bottom of the screen on the infomercials, there's small print that we put on it, and it scrolls across the screen incredibly quickly. We were eating uh, some delicious burgers last night, and uh, what was that? Was it mayonnaise? It's like mayonnaise or something like that. I know you've never heard of it. But it had mayonnaise on it. And, and on the, the side, in big print, it said, uh, cage-free eggs. Cage-free eggs. And we're thinking, that's great for them. It's wonderful. And then Sarah noticed below at the bottom, there was this real small print that said 65% of this is cage-free eggs. And we do that with the Lord. 
We say, God, with, with big, loud words in our heart oftentimes, and even in our prayer, Lord, lead me in your path. Lead me in the path of your commands. For I delight in it. If. If. That's actually all through the Scriptures. As you read your Bible, you'll see it again and again. As a matter of fact, flip over to Exodus 16. Flip over to Exodus 16. Keep that bookmarked and go back to the beginning of your Bibles, Genesis, Exodus. Exodus chapter 16. We see this in the people of God, Israel. The Lord will lead them, and yet very soon after there is a disgruntlement. There's this, this discouragement in their life. They're disgruntled about how the Lord or where the Lord has led them. The people, as you recall, are groaning out to the Lord. The Lord hears their cries. He raises up Moses. Moses leads them through in this incredible scene. Passover takes place, of course, which we know the Lord reinstitutes for us, and we're going to observe towards the end of our service, the Lord's Supper. But they're led right through the Red Sea. Incredible scene, climactic. And look what happens in Exodus 16, 1 through 3. This is about a month later. They've been set free from slavery, generations in bondage. And about a month later, we land in Exodus 16, 1 through 3. And here's what it says. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and, and, and Sinai, Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Oh, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out in the wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger. And just a month of being led by the Lord and the men that the Lord raised up to lead them, they were longing for slavery once again. That's not unusual. Go to 1 Samuel 8. It's about 100, 150 pages further on into your Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 8. So we fast forward, and Israel's now in the promised land. They've entered in. And the Lord is leading his people by the prophet Samuel. And Samuel's getting older, and he has a number of sons who do not love the Lord. They're, they're corrupt, pretty corrupt sons. And so Israel begins to make a particular cry. They begin to make a united request. The leaders of Israel, they look at Samuel... And they begin to chant, we want a king. Samuel, you're great, but we want a king. We want to be like the nations. Give us a king. And look what the Lord says about this. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. This is fascinating. It reveals their heart. Again, the small print that may be in our life where we say, Lord, lead us. But lead us how we want to be led. Is there all through the scriptures of the people of God's hearts. Verse 4 of 1 Samuel chapter 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. It sounds legitimate. It sounds logical, right? Well, look at verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but who? 
but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are doing to you. And now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. The reasoning sound logical, but in reality, the logic masks a heart problem in being led by the Lord. Of course, we won't flip there, but you go to the entire New Testament. And we see Jesus, the Messiah, the one that's been prophesied of. The anointed one of God has been sent. He's fulfilling all the Old Testament scriptures, these fingerprints of God that reveal who he will be. The King of kings has come. The leaders of Israel will not receive him, but they will aim to crucify him, accusing him, the God-man, of blasphemy. The Lord will lay his life down In our lives, as we pray, Lord, I want to learn from you. Lord, I want to be led by you. Pray that the Spirit of God would unearth in your heart and in my heart, in our heart, the fine print that we tend to put on that statement. Do I delight in being led by the Lord? Is it my delight to be led by the Lord? And Lord, would you unearth those areas in my life where that's not accurate and make it my delight? Crush those areas of my life where I find myself not delighting in your leadership and lead me in that way. Third, we'll come back into Psalm 119. Verse 36 and 37, we notice that those who finish well, they will trade and traffic in heavenly goods. They will trade and traffic in heavenly goods. Verse 36 and 37. The psalmist prays, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. The psalmist presents for us in verse 36, did you notice the dichotomy? These two statements, these two sides that are opposed to each other. Here they are. Do you see it? Verse 36, incline my heart to your testimony. So there's side one, which are the testimonies, the way of the Lord, and then there's selfish gain. There's the way of the flesh. There's the way of the self. Two sides. Everybody see this. One side, there's the testimonies of the Lord, and on this side, there's the way of the self. Self-rule, self-glorification. And he prays, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. The Scripture is full of this discussion of kingdoms. There's dichotomies. There's the kingdom of this earth, and there's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. There's two currencies. We trade and traffic in the way of this world, which is ultimately in its end, on its own, vanities. Or there's the eternal treasure, which we store up our treasures in heaven. There's the Babylon, and then there's Zion, the kingdom of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and then there's the kingdom of this world. There's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of man, the testimonies of the Lord, and the testimonies of self. Now, I'm not going to give you time to flip there, but in Matthew 16, you can write down that reference. It's one we've heard so many times. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 through 26, Jesus tells his disciples to his disciples and through his disciples in his recorded word here, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 
Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The psalmist echoes Jesus' words. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, Jesus says. And the psalmist says in verse 36, Lord, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. That the Lord would call us to deny ourselves and to follow him. In verse 37, verse 37, pictures it out practically, practically. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Turn my eyes very practically. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, Jesus says. The psalm writer here says, turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life in your ways. Same idea in these two verses. In the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian comes to a town called Vanity Fair. It's a town called Vanity, and it contains within it a fair that has gone from the dawn of time. This city is an ancient city. And this man named Christian and the pilgrims that are with him are on their way to the celestial city, this heavenly city. But in order to get there, they must first go through the city of Vanity with a fair located right in the middle. There's nothing new in this city. There's no new shops, no new businesses, nothing new under the sun. All the businesses have always been there. It's filled with every different kind of pleasure and enticement you can think of. Everything from juggling, he says, to murdering, which is quite the contrast. And in the fair, it's located by little aisles, little blocks. There's a Spanish block, there's an English block, all different blocks for different niches of interest that might capture you in Vanity's Fair. Now, Mr. Bunyan makes in this point a statement. He says, there was once the Prince of Princes that came through Vanity's Fair, but he didn't come by himself, he was escorted by a man named Beelzebub. Beelzebub was the prince of the fair. And he escorted him by hand to everything, to every booth, to the most tempting of locations in Vanity's Fair. But nothing captured him. The prince of princes refused to trade in Vanity Fair. Pilgrim and Christian, the Christian and the pilgrims reached Vanity's Fair. As they reach Vanity's Fair, Vanity's Fair looks at them and sees they're dressed quite differently. The pilgrims don't look like the people of Vanity Fair. And the people of Vanity Fair from the merchandise booths begin to shout out, You pilgrim fools! As they continue to walk, they notice that the language that's spoken, the grammar that's used, the cadences, and the way that they speak in Vanity Fair is almost like it's a totally different language than what Christian speaks with the pilgrims. And so even more, they're, they're noticed they don't quite fit. They're distinct. And they realize this is not their home. And the merchandisers notice even more, this is not your home. It drives them in to increasingly shout, buy this, buy this! But the 
pilgrims, the louder the merchandisers get, they begin to put their fingers in their ears. They begin to chant out and shout out, Lord, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give my life in your ways. Lord, turn my eyes from worthless things. Give me life according to your ways. And the pilgrims, it said, take their eyes and they won't even look at the merchandiser's booth. They take their eyes and they fix them to heaven. Frustrated, the merchandisers loud, yell as loud as they possibly can, what then will you buy? What will you buy? And finally, Christian and the pilgrims respond with one voice. We buy truth. We buy truth. Bunyan describes why they would put their fingers in their ears, look to the heavens, and say what verse 39 of Psalm 119, verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Why? Because of the pilgrims, they do not trade in traffic in Vanity Fair. They only trade in traffic in heavenly things. This marks for us the mark that we hope will mark our lives as we run the race. Those who finish well will trade in traffic in heavenly things. Would you find time this week to ask the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, would you search my heart for the things that have captured me in Vanity's Fair? In the areas where I've been captured, would you give me the boldness to repent? Would you give me the boldness to confess that to those that it impacts? Lord, even the things I, don't, I really enjoy, will you unearth those in my life where there may be aspects that are robbing from heavenly things, trading and trafficking in the heavenly kingdom? That's the goodness that the Lord gives us. Parents, I've been recommended to me and by a source I deeply trust. There's a children's book of the Pilgrim's Progress if you'd like to purchase it. It's by Helen Taylor. It's called Little Pilgrim's Progress. As we go on, fourthly, those who finish well will not allow familiarity with the Lord to diminish their fear of the Lord. Those who finish well will not allow familiarity with the Lord to diminish their fear of the Lord. Familiarity and fear. Verse 38 and 39. Confirm to your servant, the psalmist says, your promise. Confirm to the servant, to your servant. He's referred to himself now as multiple times as the servant of the Lord. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. His requests rest in an understanding of a heart that delights in the word of God, one who understands that he must have a teachable spirit of the Lord. And having a teachable spirit, he's praying for a clear picture of who God is and according to his word. And he knows that that will lead to a life that bends to the will of the Lord, a life that kneels to the will of the Lord, that's marked by reverent fear. The New American actually brings out that exact aspect of this verse. Take some translation liberty for us, but I think captures it well. The New American on verse 38 says, establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. The better our view of God is, the more respectful our lives ought to become. And that becomes the right cry of the psalmist. 
So God, where my life is out of line with your word, we do what he says in that following verse. In verse 39, turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. A right understanding, a clear vision of who God is, a more accurate vision of who God is in our lives ought to lead us to have an increased reverent fear of God that will display itself in our lives in the way that we speak to our spouse, in the way that we speak to our children, in the way that we speak to our parents, in the way that we walk through our life, that we order our priorities. The fear of the Lord will be marked in the lives of those who seek after Him by His Word. It will be a defining characteristic of those who finish well. I'll give you an example. In our student ministry, led by Bobby Austin, he does a wonderful job. Occasionally, I've had the opportunity this past semester to sit in on one of the challenges of student ministry is the, the calling of them is to, to give your life students, to give your life up for the kingdom of God, for you gain something far better. You gain a treasure, a pearl of far greater worth than what this world can offer you. And challenging and preaching that and equipping our students and calling our students to that end involves with it a reality of they're trying to engage the students as well. So there's this clear calling to come and follow Christ, also with a time of engaging that's woven together. So one of these times I was able to set in, they played a game. Bobby established these pictures. I don't know how he did it, but he changed the resolution. They had a picture of every one of their student leaders. And they had it on a projector, and they put it on the screen. And the, and the students were formed down into groups. In the different groups, they looked at a picture, which was like the worst resolution. We're talking like just a spray of paint on a screen. I have no idea. I still don't even know who it was. It was unbelievable. It was, I couldn't figure it out. The goal of the game was to look at the very distorted images of their student leaders and to guess who it was. I was like 0 for 15. I wasn't even close. It was terrible. But we had student groups that were nailing it. They were getting everywhere. We're talking like a blue and yellow shape. I didn't even think they were people, to be honest, for most of it. But then he would clarify the image and it would become... That person, clear as day. Now, these students who developed those meaningful relationships with those leaders who took an interest and investment in them, guess what? Even though they had a grainy image, they saw that person right away. But for me, somebody who was more distant and removed, I could look at it all day, and I couldn't see it. The psalm writer points out here in this text is an understanding that the more we know God, the more we then fear God, the more we will see Him by His Word in His working in our lives. What the world will look at and say, what are you giving your life for? The disciple of Christ will look at and say, how do you not see this? It's as clear as day. That's the Word of the Lord. That's the will of our Lord for our lives. To know Him is indeed to grow in a fear of Him. I'm going to have you flip over to Psalm 34, verse 8 and 9. Psalm 34, 8 and 9, very quickly. I want to show you that this is a consistent theme through the Scriptures. The better we know the Lord, the clearer we see Him in His Word. The more then our lives ought to bend to His will out of a reverent fear. To know the Lord whom we know, love, and serve. Verse 8, Psalm 34, verse 8, is a verse you've probably heard before, but you probably haven't heard verse 9 right on the tail end of it in this psalm. So verse 8, you've probably heard. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Have you heard that verse? 
taste and see that the Lord is good. It's usually put up in a kitchen somewhere. But read verse 9, and it may not make as much sense. In the kitchen, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That sounds great. But what's verse 9 say? Reflecting of those who've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, what will they have in verse 9? Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The taste and see that the Lord is good will lead us naturally to a greater fear of the Lord, a reverent fear and appreciation for who God is, which will lead to our life increasingly bending out of a reverent love and fear to our God who is good. Fifthly and finally in verse 40, those who finish well, they wait for the hope of righteousness. Those who finish well, wait for the hope of righteousness. Verse 40, he finishes off this letter, hey, Behold, I long for your precepts, and in your righteousness give me life. Let's read it again. Behold, I long for your precepts, your teachings, your word. I, I long for it, and in your righteousness give me life. Now remember, the psalmist has graciously cultivated this teachable spirit. His longing is for righteousness. His longing is for righteousness. His longing is for what? righteousness. As an Israelite, a good Israelite, he is in the promise of Abraham, and he knows the Lord through his covenant that he's a recipient of. And his longing as a good Israelite, as one who is a, is a man of God here, his longing is for righteousness. Righteousness. He eagerly awaits. He says, in your righteousness, Lord, give me life. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. Do you remember that series? I hope so, because it took me like 25 weeks. Doesn't mean you remember everything, but do you remember we went through Galatians? In Galatians chapter 5, Paul was intentional to take the time to point out to this Gentile congregation these believers who by faith have been grafted into the promise given to Abraham, into the people of God. And he makes this statement in verse 5 and 6 of Galatians 5, For through the Spirit by faith, listen, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Does that sound familiar? Let me read verse 40 again. Behold, I long for your precepts, and your righteousness give me life. And Paul reminds the believers in Galatians, don't abandon Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For what do we see? For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, it counts for anything, but only what? Faith working through love. Righteousness, forgiveness, and relationship with Yahweh is not found outside of His covenant promises. Jesus came and He instituted a new covenant by His blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But you and I, by faith, we are made righteous before God. And as Paul says, we eagerly await our hope of righteousness. When we partake the Lord's Supper together, we do so with memorialization, with celebration, 
but also with eager expectation. For one day we will dine at the table with our hope of righteousness in his glorified and our glorified resurrected bodies. Eagerly awaiting the hope of righteousness. Those who finish well wait for the hope of righteousness. That's the letter Hey. Next step. Next steps. Two questions. And our servers, you can come forward and have a seat in the front if you like. Next steps, two questions. Question one, whose example, this is, I think, a very fitting question for this weekend as well. Whose example of finishing well is God using to encourage me today in my walk with him? Whose example, whose example of finishing well? As you think through your life, it could be somebody that's, you knew growing up personally or somebody from a distant that you benefited from their teaching, who is someone that you have benefited because they chose to finish well? It could be through sickness. It could have been a, a quick ending far too early in the race. And yet they kept the faith. They held on to the gospel. They committed to pouring into others and making disciples to the very end. Who in your life can you take a moment this week, and even now, God, thank you for that brother or sister who finished well and showed me what it looks like to finish well. Who in your life has God gifted you with that type of reality, that type of example? A second question. How can I intentionally spur on those in my church family to finish well? How can I intentionally spur on those around me to finish well? See, you are indebted to the people around you. The Lord has given you an indebtedness as a family of Christ, as a local bride of Christ. We are called to love and to encourage and to help each other finish well. And that means running well today. So a question that I want you to consider and think about, not only this morning, right before we observe the Lord's Supper, but truly, the rest of this week, carve out time and ask the Lord, Spirit of God, will you show me how I might be able to encourage a brother or sister in our body to finish well? The Lord has gifted the bride two ordinances. We observed Emma's baptism last week, this public declaration of allegiance to Christ. And we observe now the Lord's Supper, this gift that the Lord has given us. He's given to the local body to observe together as one body, not in separate niches, but together as a group. Those who sit under the Word together, who pray together, who serve together, who give together, who go together. And this calling, this gifting that the Lord has given us as a body is one of the greatest aspects of encouragement that He could ever give, that you and I could ever partake of together. Because we recognize that you and I truly, no matter what the world says, regardless of your age, regardless of your background. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your king, repented of sin and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are invited to the table of the Lord. And we eat and we drink together, remembering what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us. And he has made us a body. He has broken down the dividing wall between us and God and us and each other. And he has called us to be a people that are a disciple-making body for his glory. And we are unashamed to that end 
no matter what the cost, no matter what the cost. Last week, Emma was asked in her baptism, will you follow Jesus no matter what? No matter what? That no matter what may have a small print in your life, in your heart. No matter what. I'm unashamed. The Lord's Supper is very much one of those pictures for us. Lord Jesus, I will follow you no matter what. You're the one who took my place on the cross. I'm united to you. I'm saved by grace through faith. Your body broken and your blood spilt for me. I will follow you no matter what. Lead me. Make it my delight. Let me pray before we distribute. Father, you are good. We know, Lord, that your word comes with a warning and the gift that is the Lord's Supper. Your word tells us, Lord, to, to, to examine ourselves. So, God, I ask right now, if any those that are gathered here that may not know you as king, that have never repented and placed their faith and trust in you, God, I pray, Lord, as the tray passes, that it might be a point of conviction in their hearts, that they are invited to your table if they will but turn and trust in you, this gift that is offered, presented in the Lord's Supper and by the Lord's Supper. But God, to those of us who have repented and trusted in you, who have been forgiven of our sin and made brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, God, we ask that you would strengthen our fellowship and our togetherness one to another, bound by your truth. God, help us to finish this day well as we remember Jesus Christ who finished his race perfectly, who went through all of Vanity Fair and never fell, the one who tasted death for our sin, he defeated death and he rose again. We believe that Jesus Christ is at your right hand, that he rules, and that he will rule forever. God, help him to rule in our life by your spirit. We love you and we give you glory in the name of Christ. All God's people said together, amen.